Well, good evening. I appreciate the opportunity to be here this evening, and I bring you greetings from Lone Jack. I want to start off with a public thank you, and that's to John and Rick. And since they're both over here and over in the corner, um, as most of you know, John and Rick had the oversight over our congregation in Lone Jack for about eight years until we were able to install officers uh, just a few months ago. Their patience, their guidance, their leadership was very much appreciated. So thank you, guys. Have you ever been to Fantastic Caverns or any of the other commercial caves? In Fantastic Caverns, you board a tram at the beginning of the cave, and you're in a well-lit area. Then you drive into the cave, and you see the stalagmites, the stalactites, and all the other great formations. And then as you go deeper and deeper into the cave, they stop the tram, and you're way in the back of the cave. And you remember what they do at that point in time, right? They shut off the lights. Mark, boom. Now, imagine you're in the back of that cave in the pitch black. It's so dark you cannot even see your hand in the front of your face. You see some screens. You see some gas. You see some trembling. Then what do they do? They ask one of the other employees, and we'll call him Joe for purposes of the illustration this evening, and they say, Joe, can you turn on your light? And Joe turns on his light. And it's a little light, but it's amazing how bright it is. It lights up a big area because a little light among significant darkness has an amazing effect. And then, of course, they turn back on the lights. Mark and boom. And amazingly enough, that light that was so bright when it was so dark doesn't seem so bright anymore. What would happen if Joe did not turn on his light when he was asked, when you were in the, when you were in the back of the cave? Of course, the cave would stay dark. However, what would happen if Joe missed the tram and he was not at the back of the cave when the employee said, Joe, please turn on your light? If Joe was not in the cave, the cave would remain dark. Our topic tonight is in the world, but not of the world. Our prime text comes from John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14 from the New King James Version, as will all the scriptures I read this evening. Jesus is praying for his disciples and he prays, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. These verses present a real conundrum to us. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. How can we do that? The world is such an evil but a tempting place with all of its traps and all of its allures. The only way to not become of the world is to avoid the world altogether. Isn't it? That must not be the case, however. 
Otherwise, Jesus would not have prayed what he did in verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. The struggle I face, and many of you face also, is the seemingly conflicting biblical duties of A, on the one hand, keeping from being contaminated by the world, not being of the world, and B, on the other hand, being in the world enough to let our light shine and to preach the word. The world is an evil place. Just listen to the news any evening or look on CNN.com. I'm concerned that many of us, especially me, will just avoid the world. We may begin to associate only with other members of the church and other members of our earthly family, and often those are the same people. But is that what God wants us to do? So this evening I want to look at the very familiar passages as to how we are not to be of the world. And then we'll look at some passages discussing how we are to still be in the world. And then end with, hopefully, some practical examples to stimulate your thoughts as to how we can reconcile the verses in John chapter 17 and figure out how can we be in the world but not become of the world. I'll be reading a lot of scripture this evening, so you might want to have your Bibles handy if you care to follow along. And all the passages are going to be read from the New King James Version. First, we are to not to be of the world, and for very good reason. I know the world is an evil place, a place that can ensnare me and cause me to lose my salvation. 1 John chapter 2, beginning verse 15, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, Paul sets a very high standard for God's people, beginning in the third verse. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let not even be named among you as fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty word, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, and therefore is always important, therefore, come out from among them And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Finally, James chapter 1, verse 27, we're told, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble, and and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The world is an evil place. So the best way to come out from them and be separate, 2 Corinthians, And to keep yourself from being unspotted from the world, James chapter 1, is to not associate with the world or the people of the world. Right? I perhaps overreact to these verses. 
But part of the reason I do is to avoid risk. And as Debbie will attest, I'm very risk adverse. (laughs) If I'm not around bad people, I won't be partners with them. And I will certainly be separate from them and I won't be spotted by them. Thus, avoiding non-Christians is the easy and comfortable thing to do. This is my comfort zone. So what do I mean by comfort zone? It is easy and comfortable to take these verses and just isolate myself from the world completely. When we're around other Christians, there is very little, if any, temptation to do wrong. We enjoy each other's company, and it's very comfortable, a true comfort zone. Our friends are fellow Christians. When we do things, we do it with fellow Christians. I got thinking the other day, and other than the charity events that Debbie and I have to go to because of my job, when was the last time we went out to dinner with someone other than a member of the church? And also, when was the last time we had someone not a member of the church over to the house for dinner? When I was really honest with myself, the answer is it's been quite a while. Why? Because being with other Christians keeps me in my comfort zone. But then, and there's always a then, I had to ask myself, is totally isolated really where God wants me to be? I wonder if my comfort zone is stifling the work that I'm supposed to be doing. So let's move on to the other side and our second point this evening. We are still to be in the world. First, we have a duty to spread the word. We can't do that if we're not around people. Jesus, at the end of the book of Matthew, issues the Great Commission to his apostles. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Companion passage in Mark chapter 16, verse 15 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I realize those specific instructions in Matthew and Mark are to the apostles, but I believe the principle applies to us. We're to spread the word, the good news about Jesus to all people. How can we do that if we're not in the world? If we're not around people who need to hear the word? In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Paul tells us we are to hold out the word of life for others to see. Beginning in verse 14, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's where we're at. But he continues, Among whom you shine as lights in the world. In Matthew chapter 13, we've got the parable of the sower. Notice the sower did not just sow on good ground. He broadcast the seed over a wide variety of soils. A good lesson for us. I truly do believe we can be in the world, but remain not of the world. But I'm concerned that I sometimes become so afraid of the world, so afraid that I may become of the world, that I recede into my shell of protection like a turtle my comfort zone, and thus not fulfill one of, if not the most important duties assigned to Christians. Let's look at an example of what Jesus did. What did Jesus do is always a good question for us. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. 
It wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the people that were following him. He sat among tax collectors, IRS agents, and sinners. I'm not sure which is worse, but that's okay. With Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, those lawyers get in the way of everything. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A lawyer, a tax collector, and a doctor, how much worse can you get? But remember in our prime text, Jesus' prayer to his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus makes a very curious statement. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I sent you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And that's his instruction to the twelve. That's his instructions to us also. I'll leave that verse without further comment, but it is intriguing, and I'll leave it for you to think about as to whether or not or how those verses apply to us today. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, we're told, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Another translation says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. I like that word opportunity. There's a lot of opportunities that are presented to us. The challenge is, do we take advantage of them or do we avoid them? In addition to the spreading the word, we have another duty, to let our light shine by doing good works. As, Jesus, as described by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. You are the light of the world. And he's talking to us. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men. Here's the reason that they may see your good works. But what's important about seeing our good works is it to glorify us, to let us say, I'm doing all sorts of good stuff? No. It's to glorify your Father in heaven. Light shine before men so that people can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. The cave imagery I opened up with is so relevant here. The world is a dark place. If we don't shine our lights, the world will remain a dark place. However, And there is another side. If we are not in the world so that the world can see our light, the world remains a dark place. Just as if Joe missed the tram, the cave will stay dark. God has a great plan. He does not leave us on our loan. He's established a system to help us with our required tasks. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Verse 12. Here's the reason. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's a purpose of the church structure. For equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These verses tell us that. 
God has done great things to prepare us. I'm wondering if I get so comfortable with the preparation that I forget, either intentionally or unintentionally, about actually doing the things he's prepared me for. The Apostle Paul makes this interesting statement, drawing a distinction between people of the world and people who call themselves brothers in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. That verse 10 is curious. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even eat with such a person. So we are to be in the world, but not of the world. On the one side, the best way for me not to be adversely affected by the world is to avoid the world. And then I have no risk. But I can't be spreading the word to those who need it, not being their doctor, and not letting my light shine in a dark cave unless I have exposure to those who need the word. So how do I do that? Because that's a big challenge. So how would I do that? On to our third and final point. What can we do to be in the world, but avoid becoming of the world? What can we do? There are many ways to answer that question, but I'll condense it to four thoughts for this evening. Number one, know Satan. That sounds pretty curious, but hopefully you'll see in a few minutes why I say that. Number one, know Satan. Number two, know God. Number three, know yourself. And then number four, pick your circumstances because you do have a choice. You can avoid bad situations and look for low-risk alternatives. So our first key, know Satan. We can't kid ourselves. We need to recognize that Satan is powerful and his workers are very deceptive. Anytime we enter the world, we need to be careful. Satan is powerful and his workers can be deceptive and they can set traps for us that can cause us to become of the world instead of just in the world. This topic of Satan's traps could be the topic of a full week meeting in and of itself. But I'll come up with a few examples to stimulate your thoughts and hopefully you'll get the gist. His traps can include convincing us of a wide variety of things. How about everybody else is doing it? It can't be that bad. How many times have we heard that? As parents, how many times have we heard our kids say that? Or just the simple, well, it's not that bad. God will overlook that. Or the infamous slippery slope. You do one thing and it's not too bad, so there are no consequences to that. So you do the next thing a little bit worse, but it's not that much worse. And maybe a third time, a little bit worse, and then suddenly you wonder, how in the world did I get where I am? Those little steps along the way can end you up in a place you don't want to be. Satan and his workers can be very deceptive. They can lull us. In Jude, we're told, beginning in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain men have crept in unnoticed. They're very sly. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lewdness and denied the only Lord and God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Then skipping down to verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Listen to the imagery that comes up. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I like the first part of the imagery. They appear to be good. Clouds which would appear to bring life-giving rain. And I know a lot of people across the country would really like to have that rain. But they don't. It was all appearance. No substance. And pretty leaves in the autumn. But they deliver no fruit. Next, a common tactic of Satan and his workers is to attempt, us to, is attempt to make us feel guilty about our beliefs. We are seeing that tactic a lot lately. And that's one we have to be very careful of. For example, a current tactic of the world, and we see it on the news all the time. Christians, you're being too cruel and too harsh. A loving God would not do that. You need to love all people. And thus you should bake a cake for my wedding. That hits a little home to a couple of you a little more than others. But that's what we're hearing. God's a loving God. He wouldn't ma- it wouldn't matter to him who you marry or whatever you do. Does that sound familiar? They do fail to draw a distinction between loving the person and loving the sin. And last, but certainly not least, Satan plays on our fleshly desires. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Satan came to tempt him three times. Satan knew Jesus would be very weak at this point, and he tempted him. Jesus resisted. Satan knows us well and will tempt us, especially when we are in the world and when we're at our weakest points. If we're vigilant and recognize when we are weak and being tempted, it'll make it much easier for us to resist the temptation. Satan and his workers can set many traps for us. When we are in the world and we need to be aware of Satan's power and his tactics to keep from becoming of the world. Satan is powerful and his workers are deceptive. So our first key is to know Satan. Our second key is to know God. We need to know what God wants from us. We need to remember why we're in the world. We're in the world to spread the word and to be a light. Not to become a part of the world or to blend into the world. If we blend into the world, we can't be a light. When it's dark, this little lantern lights up a big area. When all these lights are on, it doesn't light up so much. If we blend into the world, our light will not be as bright. Our prime verse in John chapter 17, verse 17, said to sanctify them by your truth. That was Jesus' prayer. One commentary says about this verse, sanctification in the heart of a Christian is progressive. It consists in his becoming more like God and less attached to the world and is getting the ascendancy over evil thoughts and passions and impure desires. And in his becoming more and more weaned from earthly objects, 
attached to those things which are unseen and eternal. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you be, uh, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Here's the key in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our mindset is very important. And our knowledge of the truth is important also. There will be people in the world who try to corrupt us morally, but there will also be people in the world who try to corrupt us doctrinally. We need to know what is right doctrinally and stay the course. We see it all over the place with all the denominational world out there. People try to get us away from doctrinal issues that we know are true based on the Bible. We need to know those. We need to believe those. We need to uphold those, even in the face of all challenges around us. To keep us from being of the world, we need to know God's word correctly and then put it into practice. Remember, we are in the world to spread the truth. And if we don't know the truth, it's kind of hard to spread the truth. We need to be lights to others. Third, we need to know yourself. We need to stay focused and we need to stay under control. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Soberly, from the Greek word sophronos, S-O-P-H-R-O-N-O-S, with sound mind, sound reasoning, proper thinking, thinking clearly, clear-headed, exercise due restraint on our passions and propensities. Our actions come from our thought process inside. If our thoughts are under control, then our actions and our tongue will be under control. The key is to keep our evil desires under control. The best way to do that is keep our minds under control. If we do that, we'll never go to those next steps of sin that are described in James chapter 1. But how do we keep our minds under control? Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 gives us a good idea. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. If our thoughts remain under control, our actions are very likely to remain under control. Keeping our thoughts under control is often difficult. But if we do what we're told in Philippians chapter 4 and if we think on those good things and not on the bad things, it will help us stay under control. So we need to know Satan. We need to know God. We need to know ourselves, which leads to our fourth and final point. We need to pick our circumstances. We need to avoid obviously bad situations or circumstances. For example, jobs. Some jobs are obviously bad. They can be in the wrong industry, the wrong location, and the like. Some locations are just inappropriate places for us to be. And finally, we need to avoid or be careful of potentially bad situations. Prime example is social media. Social media can either be very good or very bad. We often think social media exchanges are private, and sometimes we let our guard down. That's a big mistake. You need to be careful of your digital footprint. Remember, whatever you put on the Internet stays somewhere and can be hacked, and inappropriately manipulated. In my profession, I have no choice but to keep my digital footprint very small. I've told this story before, and so I apologize if you've heard it before. 
But whenever one of our companies gets into litigation, one of the first things we do is we subpoena the phone records, the electronic records, the computer records, and the social media records from the principals on the other side of the litigation. It's amazing what people post or share on the Internet whenever they think it's only between them and the other person. Even if you think you've deleted something, whether a picture, a text, a tweet, a Google search, a website you may have visited, or even the locations you've visited, which are saved on your phone unless you shut that off, rest assured, my forensic people can find it. So instead of a bad situation, we should look for good situations. We should look for low-risk alternatives. There's opportunities for us to let our light shine. For example, kid activities. Baseball, t-ball, softball, horse events, gymnastics, football, track, band, choir, theater, etc. Parents and kids can both let their light shine. Kids, when somebody fails, do you encourage them? Parents can be supported not only of your own kids, but other kids and the coaches. I coached baseball for many years, and it was amazing how few parents actually came up and said nice things to you. You always heard when Johnny was playing right field instead of playing shortstop, but you heard very few compliments. Second, school or co-op situations and functions. You can build personal relationships with little risk, both among the kids and the parents and with the teachers. Again, real opportunities to let our light shine. What do you do in school if you see somebody being bullied? What do you do if you see somebody sitting at lunch all by themselves? Parents, when things come up with a dispute with the teacher, how do you handle it? My dad was president of the school board when I was growing up, and a lot of my parents' friends were teachers. And they'd come over to our house pretty regularly. It's amazing the stories the teachers would tell about the parents. Where are you in that situation? You can get involved with activities. It's an easy way to be in a low-risk environment, to get involved with school and co-op activities. A lot of activities are with pretty good people. A chance to get to know them, look for opportunities. Kids, what programs are available to you? Fellowship of Christian Athletes. At Truman Heartland Foundation, where I'm on the board, we've got a youth advisory council. At Kirsten School, they've got a compass service project. Many ways to get involved with little risk. Another example is at work another potentially low-risk alternative. There's a lot of things at work that present opportunities if we look for them. Little things. A person is having a bad day and you come up to them and say, I'll keep you in my prayers. I actually tried that. I've been afraid to try to do that to say, what, how would people react to that? I actually tried it. It was amazing, the reaction. And I've gotten two or three thank you notes and thank you emails since that point in time. Something so easy. It's now on my list to do much more regularly. How do you react in a stressful situation? Are you calm like Jesus during the storm or do you react like a volcano? Sometimes a person may see how you handle stress and then come to you and talk to you when they're having an issue. Remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 that I read a little earlier? Do all things without complaining and disputing. If you're a worker and you're in the workplace and you follow that, from a management perspective, I can tell you that is very much appreciated. Complaining and disputing, we hear a lot. At work, do things without complaining and disputing. How unusual, how appreciated. Fourth and finally is charities. Charities are a low-risk alternative. 
getting involved with charities is a great way to let your light shine. There's a saying that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Working with charities is a great opportunity to show people how much we care. And then it opens doors to other alternatives. It's surprising the number of charities we have in our area and the work they do is amazing. And I'm sure they're very good charities in the areas you come from also. So kid events, schools, work, charities, all ways that we can let our light shine with very low risk. As we bring this lesson to a close, I know the world's a bad place. And it's easy and comfortable for me to avoid the world and remain in my comfort zone and be among fellow Christians. But much to the chagrin of my wife, I'll leave you with the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And you remember what happened and what God said with the first two. But the third one, beginning in verse 24, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I was never sure I knew what Jesus was really telling me in this passage. I'm now wondering if hiding a light under a basket and hiding a talent in the ground both have to do with being prepared to do good works, being prepared and able to let my light shine, but not doing it because it's too easy and too comfortable not to. Remember in my introduction, if Joe does not turn on his light, the cave will remain a dark place. However, if Joe gets afraid of the cave and does not get on the tram and thus does not go into the cave, the cave stays dark. In order to make the world a brighter place, in order for people to hear the word and see our light and give glory to God, we must both be in the world and let our light shine. If we either don't go into the world or once we are in the world, we don't let our light shine, that is, we become of the world, If we fail in either of those challenges, we fail God. However, to be in the world enough to let our light shine but not be polluted by the world is difficult. And I recognize that. But I hope we don't let fear of the world keep us from letting our light shine and being seen by those who need it, especially in spreading the word to those whose salvation, whose eternity is at stake. There are some low-risk alternatives available to us. The church prepares us to do service. The church equips us for the ministry. Will, Will we be a light in a dark cave? Or will we let all of that preparation go to waste and the light goes off? That's the challenge we face. That's the challenge I present to each of us. To go out and be in the world. Do what we're supposed to do, 
to spread the word, let our light shine. But because of the four things that I talked about, we hopefully can do that without becoming of the world. And that's what I'll leave with you. If, you're, if, you're, if we're members of God's body and we light, let our light shine, we know what awaits us. And that's heaven. If we're not a member of God's body, or if we were once and have fallen away, a fate far worse than a dark cave awaits you. If the congregation here can be of any of assistance to you this evening, please come forward as we stand and sing a number Craig's about to announce. Thank <laughs> you.